This is the Joy of Geek. Welcome to the Joy of Geek podcast, episode 61. I'm Rich Lapore, and recently I had the opportunity to attend Oak City Comic Con in Raleigh, North Carolina, where myself and co-host Kevin Schaefer hosted a panel with YA author Scott Rankin titled How to Get Your Novel Published. Well, Scott knows a thing or two about the subject. Last year, he had his debut novel, Nixia, the first in a trilogy published from Crown. And so he will talk with us about how he got an agent, uh, how to deal with rejection, um, and just story and storytelling. What makes a great novel? What makes something compelling? I also am always curious, what's the difference between YA novel and a regular, quote-unquote, regular novel? Um, and, you know, obviously there's the there's the basics of the, the main character, but he also goes into a little more depth about why he made the decision to publish this book as a YA title um, and what it's like being in that business. So he has some really interesting things to say. We'd like to thank Scott for giving us the opportunity to record the panel and also share it with you. Now, do be aware that since this is a live recording, it is not perfect. Um, there will be some questions that the audience asks that are a little hard to hear. I'll try to boost the levels on those, but um, it's not a perfect science, so do bear with us. Other than that, without any further ado, here is our interview with YA author Scott Rankin from Oak City Comic Con in Raleigh, North Carolina. Cool. Well, we just it's hit three o'clock. Three o'clock. So it, it is time, Kevin. Yeah. Now, why don't you uh, why don't you kick everything off? Okay. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Um, I'm Kevin Schaefer, and this is my podcast co-host Rich Lepore. How you guys doing? Um, we are here with Scott Rankin. Um, do you want to go over all the ways your name has been mispronounced? Over the uh, many, yeah, tele, telemarketers, telecommunicators uh, have, have hit me with a lot. Ringgen yeah. and Rindgen. Right, and right. Rindigan. I used to tell them, if hey, if you could pronounce it correctly, I'll put my mom on the phone. Because uh, <laughs> she's more the, susceptible. The be, yeah, well, the best part, though, is that they would attempt it. You know? Right, right. Like, These are like adults who are like this punk kid. Right. And I'd be like, if you pronounce it correctly, I'll, I'll put her on the phone. And without fail, they'd be like, Rindskin? Right. You're like, nope, see you later, click. So. See, for me, it's the spelling, because Schaefer gets, like, we spell it like the beer, Schaefer, but it uh-huh. never gets spelled right. Um, but anyway, so um, Rich and I are the hosts of the Joy of Geek podcast, and he also does Joy of Gaming. Um, I'm also, I'll be a comic writer by the end of the year. I have a first story coming out in the Corpus Anthology later this year. Um, but yeah, we're, and then Scott, why don't you tell a little about yourself and about the Nixia series? Uh, yeah, so the Nixia series is my debut trilogy. Uh, it came out this past September from Penguin Random House. Uh, it was one of their lead sci-fi titles in the fall. Um, it's a it was an indie bestseller, kind of right out of the gate. Uh, New York Public Library, one of their books of 2017. So a lot of very positive uh, reaction. Um, and my favorite thing is that like my two blurbs are from Marie Lu and Victoria Schwab, which are like. Dream cast, yeah. like I couldn't have pitched it any better. Um, so yeah, my my second book comes out in July, and thankfully the third one. I'm not gonna George R. R. Martin, you guys. I, I've, got, <laughs> I've, got, I've got the third one coming. Uh, I hear it's in the can. It's already done. It's already done, and I've probably never felt more confident about a book than I do about book three. Like I I closed out this series, and I did these characters justice, and. All the people who have already read book one and loved yeah. book one, I, I, I know I've I know I've done them no disservices. Like they're gonna really enjoy the ride. So awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I met George R. R. Martin about four years ago. He did a reading from the sixth book then at the convent. So. See, that's just mean, but also I love it. But I yeah. know. I mean, he's you know, it's George R. R. Martin. Yeah, so what can yeah. you say except that it's unfortunate? Yeah, but, um, but everybody wants that book. Does. Um, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about your origin story. Um, I understand I, I've, I've done a little uh, looking into you, uh, mm-hmm. podcast and mm-hmm. and other interviews you've done, and so I understand you, your writing origins were sort of sports uh, reading. You read a lot of sports books. It's true, that's and then true. that kind of that's got you dig, into that's a deep dig. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Gosh. Troy uh, Aikman uh, biography yeah. I think was, oh, was referenced explicitly. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, I I love that you call it an origin story. It makes me feel a little bit more like a superhero, mm-hmm. um, and I'll take that. Um, but my my, I definitely was not the strongest or most interested reader. I grew up um, kind of thinking it was a little nerdy to read, um, and now, like as you can see, I have fully embraced my nerddom. Uh, but I definitely was at a point where. You know, I still remember I had a teacher come into my classroom. Uh, she was a seventh grade teacher and she looked tired. And never tell your teachers they look tired, but she looked tired. Um, and so she comes in and she's like, I just stayed up all night reading Harry Potter. And I was like, that's the nerdiest thing ever. But then by the time book seven came out, I think I was a, a senior in high school or a freshman in college. And I picked that book up at midnight at one of those yep. midnight oh, parties. And I read it straight to 8 p.m. until I finished it. And so I obviously became a reader. I dove back into my love for sci-fi and fantasy. Um, And obviously along the way, too, I I started to fall back in love with writing, which I had always really, really enjoyed. Sure. Yeah. Uh, And then what was the – where did it go from there? So – um, you you really get into Harry Potter and 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 what 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 sort of were the next genre uh, steps? Yeah. So in terms of genre, uh, who here plays lots of video games? I certainly do. <laughs> I hope all of us, in awesome. some degree. Uh, in so, some ways, it's yeah. the most evolved art form. You know, in some ways. In some ways, some would say. Um, and so I played lots of World of Warcraft. Uh, and even if it's just like you know you're you're getting ten wolf pelts or whatever, mm-hmm. there's a story like that farmer needs those wolf pelts because his daughter was eaten by the undead, and like there's right, all these right. like things that you have to do. And story he, he's is cold, just, man. He's cold. He's having a bad winter. The apocalypse is coming. Whatever. Um, so there are always stories, and I remember just being wrapped up in these epic tales of. Whether it was the farmer with the wolf pelts or conquering a dragon, I wanted to write those kinds of stories. So it began, I think, with a lot of fan fiction, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. a lot of like diving into Ashran's Call and World of Warcraft okay. and just telling those stories but with slightly different characters. And then eventually in high school, I had a really important, with a teacher, uh, important moment with a teacher who pushed me into writing by switching me illegally out of a Spanish class. Well, she was like, you're a really good writer. I'm going to switch you. Uh, and I was like, can you do that? She said, stop asking questions. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And then what did you major in in college? So I was an English major right. uh, in creative writing minor at UNC uh, and got to my final time at UNC in my kind of senior year and realized I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and so it's I kind became, of the typical English degree story. Yes, yeah, it, happened, we it all happened very quickly. Uh, and I became a teacher. Um, so I taught for, for four years. And in that time, I was meeting with a writing group every week. Um, I had connected with them at, in grad school. Um, and I slowly started working not on Nixia, but on the two books that I wrote before Nixia. Okay. Uh, that would never see and may never see the light of day. 
We know how that goes too. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, that's. I mean, I would say that who here is an aspiring writer? Author? Yeah. Okay, so awesome. just get to. I mean, you, it is very much. And this whole panel is about getting published, so it is very possible to get published. I don't want to kill your dreams there, but you are going to write plenty of stuff that you want to get out there, and it's just going to either it's going to take a really long time. Or it's just not gonna happen, and that's don't be discouraged by that. So. Well, I know I know yeah. that you may mine those those two books for ideas at some point. So I'm not asking you to yeah. spill the beans on what they were about necessarily. But what what do you think it was about those two that maybe didn't work as well as Nixia did? So um, yeah, I'll walk through the whole story awesome. of that because it's important again to get perspective sure, sure. and know it is difficult, but it is worthwhile and it is doable. Sure. Um, so the first one, I think, the difference between Nixia and those two was simply time logged, right? The amount of time I had worked. I mean, I, I probably, in my first book, I think I had probably written about 500 hours worth of writing. Like in terms of that's how, many, how much I had practiced. By the time I wrote book two, which didn't sell, was about 2,000. By the time I wrote Nixia, I think I had logged about 6,000 hours of writing time. And there's that whole quote about 10,000 hours of something leads to mastery. And I'm nowhere near mastery, but I had definitely written a superior product. And then there is the factor of luck, hitting the market at the right time and getting in an agent's inbox on the right day. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is a factor to that. I mean, if an agent is having a bad morning, they might reject you just because they're having a bad morning. Yeah. And that's not your fault. It's nothing wrong with your work. It's just, this is kind of luck of the draw. Um, and then I had gotten better at learning how to pitch myself to an agent and right. how to actually write the query letter that gets you an agent. And I, I was, you can see it from first to third, much better at that. Right. Much better. Well, and I want to get to that in a sec, but yeah. first I have to ask because, okay, so you're a creative writing teacher. Now, yes. having been an English major, and we were talking about this a little on the mm -hmm. way over here, so generally genre fiction is like a very unpopular phrase in academia. Yeah. So what was it before you even started like trying to get a publisher in Asia and all that, what was it like trying to just gain the respect of your colleagues and as you're writing young adult sci-fi? Well, I think the good thing is that these genres in terms of how they're being treated in popular culture sure. are growing in such vast popularity that the authenticity behind them and the, the reality that they are genuine art sure. and sure. people in those circles can't be as snobby. I mean, it just, you, they continue to win out. Um, I had a hard time. I was at UNC yeah. um, and I had great professors at UNC who taught me incredible, important rules about how to write and how to get published. Mm -hmm. And then I had other teachers who literally would look at my writing as genre writing and say, well, it's good craft, but what you're writing isn't real writing. And I, I say this at schools and it always gets an O, but I always say, yeah, they told me my writing wasn't real, but now I make real checks. So I think I'm doing okay. Um, and it, but it's frustrating to yeah. think that a voice, because I, I kept going because I love it. Like I mm -hmm. love to write. I love it bone deep. It is the mm -hmm. thing that I wake up in the morning, my heart beats faster because I get to write stories. It's so exciting. Awesome. But someone else if, if maybe like if they're in the middle of that process and someone says well what you're doing isn't real art I can't count how many people I know who stopped writing in college yeah. because of those voices and I think that's a shame uh, it really is because it quiets voices that we need 
right. But yeah. Well, speaking of genre, um, also another distinction in this, it would be categorized as, as kind of YA, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is it? I, and I've been wondering about this. I, it's kind of like YA is one of those things you know it when you see it, or it's or it's marketed a sure. different way. But what is the actual definition? How does it differ aside from your target audience? Or is that the only distinction? Uh, so I think people in my genre really hate the parameters that exist. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I think they exist for, for with a purpose and with reason. I Generally, the only thing that I've seen as somewhat of a hard, fast rule is the age of the narrator. But even that, I mean, you can have a 15-year-old narrator in a clearly adult project. So it's not a perfect uh, parameter, mm -hmm. I don't think. In my mind, it is who I'm writing for. I wrote my book for my students. I wrote it for the teenagers that were in my class. I thought it was a book that they would love if adults love it and they have then so be it that's great I'm really thrilled that it connects with you but I know who I wrote it for and for me that made it YA interestingly enough when I took this out to publishers there were two houses that bid on it back and forth back and forth which we like yeah, uh, that yeah. raises the, the price so I got a better paycheck out of it um, but these two houses, one was young adult and one was adult. Oh. And so I had the choice very early on. The adult offer was slightly more. I could have gone the adult route, and I don't know what would have happened, but I knew who I wrote it for, and so I chose a YA publisher, and we spun it in that direction. Okay. What What do you think – hmm, that's, that's interesting. So do you mm -hmm. think part of that decision was also – about the you know the check may be a little bigger up front, but the potential reach of the book, and 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 the success you're going to have later, which obviously is both a creative and a financial decision. No, I think I, I chose it because of who I wrote it for, and then also I trusted the editor. Uh, mm -hmm. You're you're interviewing them basically. They're on the phone giving you their vision of the, what they think that the book can become. And not that I didn't trust the adult side of that. Uh, they had a good pitch too, but I trusted the YA a little bit more. And so we chose that. Um, in the UK, my book's with an adult publisher. So oh. it's marketed and packaged like it's an adult book. Uh, so it just depends on who buys it and what they want to do with it. But where when I had the choice, I was going to say YA for sure. I love that. I, I, that's, that's really cool. I, I didn't know that that you, it was like that in the in the publishing industry. It depends. I mean, I was lucky enough to have multiple publishers who were interested, so it went to auction, and there I had a choice. Same with before that with my agent search. I had so I can I walk through Please, the, the yeah. yeah. So, I really want to hear about the agents. Good gracious! Okay. I have, like I'm just starting out in comics writing, which is yeah. very different from the world of prose. Very. Yeah, so yeah. I want to hear all about. So you write a query letter, and most of the people in the room who are aspiring authors have probably heard that term. It's a three-paragraph letter, um, one paragraph about your book, one paragraph about where your book fits in the market. Oh, it's Hunger Games in space. It's Ender's Game meets such and such. Um, and then one paragraph about you, which mine was not, you know, usually you put like awards there. I was just like, I'm a teacher. Um, so those three paragraphs, and the whole goal is you write that one-page email, you send it to these agents who, I'll give you the statistic, it's a little depressing, but my agent, Kristen Nelson, who represents Marie Lu and Hugh Howie and Gail Carriger and Allie Carter, all these best-selling authors, she had 30,000 query letters the year she picked me up. And she picked up three clients, one of whom was me. Wow. I'm not great at wow. math, but I'll let wow. you guys run the numbers. Um, Those are like lottery numbers. It's so, like But I'm going to make it less depressing, okay? okay. Um, so first, let's talk about how I failed, which is less depressing because it's not you. It's me. Um, so my first two books, um, I sent my first book out to agents with that query letter. 
50 agents. I got one request. She read it, uh, the first 20 pages, and rejected it. So that's two years, 50 rejections. Second book, I send out thinking like, I've gotten a little bit better, I'm a little sharper. Of course this is gonna go better. Um, unfortunately, uh, I got one request, same agent who was like, I kinda liked your last one, sure, let's hear it. Um, read it for two weeks, rejected it. So I have three years, two books, and this is the point where I'm like, am I cut out for this? Am I supposed to be doing this? And then spoiler, Nixia, which has been translated into five different languages. Um, I have a film agent, that's weird to say. Like really cool things have happened with this book. Uh, had 18 requests for manuscript reads, had eight agents offer me representation, which meant I got to interview them and be like, hey, what can you do for me? Uh, which was great, right? Um, but it was a completely different process yeah. and the statistics of it, like those first two books, rejections are normal. I know someone, so I did an event with Marie Lu in Phoenix. She's like probably one of the best YA authors that exist. She had 700 rejection letters before she got published. She tried since age 18 and pitched six books to agents and got all of them rejected before finding it. I also have a friend in my writing group, he's local to Chapel Hill, sent to one agent, got accepted and got published and that's it. So the stories, they just, it just depends on who you are. But my, my idea and my kind of theme is like, if you're meant to write, keep writing. If you love to write, yeah. keep writing. And if you want to get published, it is just a matter of time. It might be eight books, it might be one rejection letter, it might be two books. It just depends on who you are and what your journey holds. Right. What was the um, what was the the interview process like with those agents? Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious. Okay. So you know how like I look like I'm a normal human right now. Like I'm interacting in a way that like <laughs> I'm not. I'm a very socially awkward individual. Uh, agents are worse. Um, so it was like all these like awkward like both people sweating profusely interviews like uh, I was in Switzerland at the time so um, I got to call back and we would do Skype sessions and like all of them are like in dim lighting like uh, like do you want to talk now do I talk now what's the deal so it just it was very awkward but it was informative and there's lots of resources to help you figure out what questions should I ask an agent if I'm in that position um, and I looked up those resources, wrote down those questions, and those interviews got better and better for me. I very quickly could learn, okay, you have a plan for what you want to do with this book. You know what publishers you want to pitch it to. You know which publishers will connect with this book versus some of, some of them were junior agents who didn't have a, a lot of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do with your book. Right, right. They, they didn't have a lot of direction. So, yeah. And so this whole conversation is really interesting because seems like from the beginning you were pretty intent on getting a publisher going that route which is interesting because yeah. self-publishing is a very common practice so yeah what are the benefits of going the traditional route versus self-publishing yeah so self-publishing is as legitimate as it has ever been uh one of the names i mentioned hugh howie who uh -huh. represents is represented by kristen nelson now started in self-publishing i did a panel with andy weir i mean he is like the marketing yeah. face of self-publishing i think um, so I would say the benefits of traditional publishing are what your publisher can put behind the book and obviously getting paid up front. Uh, so I got an advance that essentially let me do full-time writing. I don't teach anymore. I, I'm a full-time author now. Um, and I could only do that with a traditional publishing 
with a traditional publisher backing me. Um, obviously, you get less of a cut. So if you self-publish, you get higher percentages and royalties. Uh, but at the end of the day, I got paid a good amount of money, and I had a publisher with wild amounts of resources backing my book, sending me to San Diego Comic-Con mm, and New awesome. York Comic-Con and Yalt Fest and every festival imaginable. They're the ones who could pull the strings and put me on a panel with Cory Doctorow or Andy Weir. Like I had some great wow. panels and I know it's because my publisher was trying to get the word about my book out to people. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm curious too, because a lot of my professors advised to start in short stories, but you went kind of straight for books. Did you ever have any short stories on you you wanted to try first? Or? So I am not a good short story author. It's tough. <laughs> uh, I just, I'm never, it's everything expands and blows up and I, all of a sudden I have a full-fledged plot and sure. I write quickly so I just run with it. Um, that model is more traditional. Sure. It's more science, science fiction adult. Um, whereas the YA model, there is no like, yeah, oh, no. you wrote four short stories. Like we're really interested in pitching your YA book now. Um, yeah. That has changed and transformed, and so it's not the typical model anymore. Um, but for sci-fi, uh, Alice Wong is who comes to mind, um, or Alyssa Wong. Um, there are several authors who are fantastic and write short stories, and that is how they slip into. Um, novel writing uh, or traditional publishing deals. It right. just depends on where you're coming from and why. I, I personally didn't find it very valuable. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, the, the writing process of Nixia and, sure. and sort of the, the evolution of this particular project. <laughs> um, so I know that the story begins at Jordan High School, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of the way that this is a very diverse book. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I had a class at Jordan High School that was incredibly diverse. I had kids that came from every background imaginable. Um, and when they slid books, some of the most popular books, right? Maze Runner and Ender's Game, pulled those books off the shelf. They had a lot of trouble seeing themselves in the story. And so of one of the big points of emphasis for me in writing Nixia was I wanted to set this book down in my classroom at Jordan High School and any kid from any background would find themselves on those pages. And I think the exciting thing to me is that as much as I had fun writing this and as important as I think it is to write representatively, we're seeing a new wave of own voices authors. So Tomi Adeyemi just crushed the YA list. If you've never heard of Children of Blood and Bone, please go read it. It's fantastic. Um, this week, she wasn't just number one in the YA list, which is not as hard as the adult list. Adults sell a lot higher than YA, so they tend to have to hit higher numbers to make the, yeah. the New York Times list. Tomi was number one on Amazon for all books this week. Hmm. Like all, all books, any book that exists, she was number one on Amazon. Um, she probably moved like 60,000 copies this week. Wow. Um, and so we're seeing this surge of her book. Angie Thomas has been at number two on the New York Times bestseller list for 50-something weeks. Um, so we're seeing this great movement of not only representative writing, but people who are writing their stories who are from those backgrounds and putting themselves on the page in realistic and authentic ways. So it's an exciting time to be a writer, I think. That really is. Yeah. So you have the idea that you want to have a, you know, a book that's, that's representative and, and can be approached by people all diff of all different backgrounds. Um, and then I understand that you, the, the whole sort of origin, I don't want to keep saying that, but the, 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 the start of this book was this idea of a mask. Yes, uh, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and sort of, I, I'm interested in Nixia itself. Now, I haven't read the book yet. Um, I would love to, and I will. Mm -hmm. But what is, is Nixia, and what's sort of, 
because it's the core of the of the story. Yeah. Right? So uh, the story really is about this substance. Um, it's really about the kids who are going to get more of this substance. But Nixia is creatively manipulable. So imagine I'm holding a marble in my hand that is a small black marble made of Nixia. Nixia can take a thought and shape itself around the thought. So if I'm holding that marble, but I think gloves, 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 takes the thought, shapes it, now I'm holding gloves. And I can do that over and over again depending on what I need. So if I need a pair of shoes, if I need a belt buckle, um, if I need a pin, I just have to focus, transform that that little piece of stone into that new thing. Um, and I obviously can use that in any way imaginable. So it's very versatile, very dangerous as well. So they learn to train with it at, aboard the ship um, and obviously want more of it because I would want more of a substance that can be anything I need at any given time. Um, and so that definitely began with that idea of a translation mask, kids from all over the world, um, and kind of this exciting idea of 10 kids from Japan and China and Brazil and Switzerland and America and Detroit, you know, like all these great, great locations bringing kids together and then having them compete and without the, the kind of restriction of language in place. Sure. That competition aspect is is one of my favorite things, and obviously it's a big trope. Sorry for the word of of YA is is you know the Hunger Games and the Maze yeah. Runner. They always have these these competitions where there's you know the, the different young characters are pitted mm -hmm. against one another. Mm -hmm. I love Battle Royale and and, and sure. you know PUBG is a huge video game right yeah. now. Player Unknown Battlegrounds. People love this Battle Royale concept and this concept of everybody pitted against each other and what that brings out about your humanity. Sure. Um, what is it about that concept, and, and could you talk a little about the contestant aspect? To the book. I, I think that uh, I'm like unnecessarily competitive. My wife's uh, manning the booth down there at NC Comic Con right now, and she would tell you that like if there's a piece of trash on the floor, I can't just like be a normal human and throw the trash away. <laughs> I have to like crumple it up and be like, how much you want to bet I can throw that in the trash can over there? And she's like, what is? Why do you have to live your life this way? Um, and so it's just, it's just a part of my nature my nature to have that. And then I think from the perspective of a company that wants the most trained, well-prepared people possible to go down and do the task that has to be done. Competition, iron sharpens iron. That whole idea of just grueling settings and pitting people against each other, uh, unfortunately, can often bring the best out of them. I think of the great rivalries in sports that I always watched growing up, and oftentimes the best performances came when the best person was across from them, and they had to perform, they had to deliver. Um, and so I think there's something about that that rings true to just the human experience. We want to be the best at what we do, um, and Emmett, Emmett's great for that. I, I set him up to be this very cutthroat character, and the flip side of the coin of being cutthroat and competitive is that Emmett refused to do what I wanted him to do as a character. <laughs> so he continually like made friends. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, that's that's a competitor. And he's like, no, I like Kaya. And I'm like, come on, man. And so he was continually kind of finding people to enjoy as well. So I, yeah, I, yeah our, my characters like run away from me all the time. Which, which I've heard from a lot of authors, when you really are on to something, your characters start to take a life of their own. Sure. And that definitely yeah. happened for you, especially with Emmett. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, the, I think I had an ending in mind, and um, he refused to do what I wanted him to do at the end of the story. And so you mean I the end of the trilogy or the end of the, the first book? The end of the first book. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so it completely took a different direction because of that. Um, but several times I think that happened for sure. Yeah. Well, and also on that note, so I read some of your blog posts, and... Now, it sounds like, and this again, right here, it's okay to fail, okay, and mess up or whatever. And so 
the second book was quite a challenge. So do you want to talk about this and yeah. the writing process? Yeah, I want to, I mean, obviously this is focused on getting published and a lot of you probably want an insight into what exactly happens once you have the deal. Like what, like once I get the agent and get yeah. the publishing deal, what then? Um, and aside from this book falling down a lot, um, there is a lot of, like one thing that I, I learned early on, I'm just gonna walk through a litany of like sure, quick ahead. hits. Go so yeah. one thing is you will continue to get rejected no matter how successful you are. Um, I pitched an adult book recently and found no editorial home for it and that project has vanished, right? Um, I had coffee with V.E. Schwab in New York. She just signed a million dollar deal for like five books with tour. And she sat down with me and the first thing she said is like, I got rejected by like five people this past month. So like, they're still getting rejected. I'm still getting rejected. Rejection is just a part of the process and having that thick skin from earlier in the process will help you tremendously. Um, the other thing I would say is learning how to operate with an editor um, and hearing the editorial voice. Um, my book too was a good book. I thought I had five or six trusted beta readers who had read it and loved it and I pitched it to my editor and I was like, this is gonna be great. And she like ran it over with a truck. Like it just was bad. Um, she was like, I don't like the main conflict and I kind of don't like the side conflict. And I was like, those are the conflicts. Uh, <laughs> that's the story. Um, and so I rewrote 90%, uh, 80,000 of 90,000 words wow. of book two. I, I had 50,000 words of book three ready, and I had to cannibalize Ooh. half of that and pull it into book two, which made the rest of it useless. Is that, is that I want to hear the rest of the quick yeah. hits, but is that that concept of, the, I, I hear really great TV writers talking about, you can't think about five seasons, you have to make season one all your best ideas, and then after sure. that, sort of be like, okay, now what? That, because otherwise yeah, you don't get yeah, season yeah. two. Yeah. Is that what that is? To an extent, to an extent. I know people who plan out a series and do reserve great ideas at the end of their series. I was desperate because I thought my editor hated my book and was gonna like just send me out into the abyss. Like, do they just send authors to like a cliff to, to like, <laughs> just leave us now? Um, but so I was so nervous that I knew I had great concepts in book three and if I just pulled them up, um, maybe it would work out. And I found a new conflict and I, I changed it and I switched it and I'm very proud of what this book has become. Um, but that yeah. was exceedingly challenging. You didn't say it's better though. Uh, you, say it's, <laughs> you liked yours yes, too. I, I liked what my two was. I do think it is a much better book. Okay. Um, and that's where, that's another quick tip is eventually uh, you learn to trust your editor. So in book one, I was like, you're wrong. Like, you're not right about that. I don't think what, you know what you're talking about. But by the time we traced our way through book two, I could sense just how, how she had her fingers on the pulse of the story. And she was seeing things that I could not see because I was so deep in the story. It's so like she had this great perspective, like she was standing up on a cliff and she could say, hey, that's broken, that's broken, that's on fire. Um, and whereas I was like, I, it's just warm. I don't know, I don't see a fire. Um, so she was giving this great perspective on things. But it's also your art. And when people pick this book up for the rest of my life, they're not gonna think, oh, this is that book that Emily Easton edited. They're gonna think, this is the book Scott Rankin wrote. It has my name on it. And so I had to definitely learn the delicate balance of listening to a very wise, trustworthy voice and fighting for the moments that I knew were authentic to what I wanted to write and say, no, 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 no. We're actually not gonna change this part because I believe this, this, and this. And sometimes 
that argument won out, and then sometimes you got the reminder in your head of like, oh, she paid me a lot of money. Maybe I should listen to her. How's, um, how's yeah, one so. different from in that process? Being that the manuscript was what was it a complete manuscript when it when it got purchased and bidded on? And then how did that the the clout of the fact that yeah. that everybody wanted it give you more sort of leverage in that editing process? I mean, say, I was, people I was talking this. about it. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I definitely one that was the weird. That was really weird, actually. Um, they bought book one and book two and book three, and book one existed, book two and book three did not. But I still got paid for them. <laughs> so like, there's this weird moment where I was getting money for something that I was gonna make up but still didn't exist, which is like multiple layers of like, scary. this is scary, yeah. Um, that also I, means you're front end loaded on your paycheck. Very much so, right. yeah, they pay you, so if anyone doesn't know this, they so it's an advance against royalties, so you get paid up front, and they keep all the royalties until you hit that number, typically. It's split across three payments in most houses. Some do it across four. Uh, but my payments are split up on signing. I got one payment for each of those books. Of, so I got three of my nine payments uh, on delivery of the manuscript. So when book one is checked off by my editor and she says, this is a good book, let's send it to copy edits, I get my fourth payment. Uh, when book one publishes on the publishing date, I get another payment. So it's split across these three different styles of sure. payments for sure. <clears throat> and then, but, but what did you say that the process was like in the, in the editing room with, with book one? Did it stay intact? It did mostly stay intact. So with book one, I had the, the benefit of, it was a pretty solid thing that people had fought for. So I knew it was a, and your book ones, I'm gonna just clue you into this too. Your book one is the book that oftentimes you've spent a lot of time working up to. You've had years to kind of like perfect it. Uh, you've got the training of previous books that add to how good that book is. Your book two, uh, it's very difficult. You're often on deadline, it's a quick process. Yeah. You're, you don't have all the things channeling into it that you did on book one. I was in a debut group, so in 2017, all of the middle grade and young adult uh, debut authors were in this Facebook group together, and like 60 of us had struggles with book two, right. massive struggles with book two, because it's such a difficult process. I have a friend who, his first novel is coming out this summer, and but he struck a whole deal for the whole series mm -hmm. but he's been writing that book since probably before we were in high school like i read drafts of the back when we were in high school yeah. and so i mean obviously it's changed a lot since then but he exactly what you're saying i mean he's been meticulously putting that together for years and years yeah and it's gonna i'm wondering it'll be interesting to see what the next one is like sure and then at the same time like you have gotten so much better so the skills you're bringing to the table i do like neil gaiman's kind of idea of like you're, you never learn how to write a book. You just learn how to write that book. And by the time you finish and get to the next one, you gotta relearn the whole process again because it's a whole new book with new ideas. And I believe a lot of that actually, sure, sure. for sure. sure. I mean, he that said, he's not a, a trilogy writer. That's um, true. So that's a very different he's art cheating. form. He's yeah. cheating, Neil's, <laughs> Neil's cheating, he's cheating the system. That's a different art form in and of itself. Um, so there's two things I want to ask you about that I do want to ask you about book three in a minute, but before I do that, um, there was this interesting movie that came out recently a lot of people enjoyed and, and didn't do as well as it maybe could have, Annihilation. Um, yeah. And it's based on the Southern Reach trilogy, mm -hmm. which I don't know if you've read it. I have. Yeah. Um, but that is um, notable in a couple ways. One, it's a very unique idea. Um, number two, it was released in what they call the Netflix release model. Yes. Of this like quick hit, like yeah. six months in between books or something. I noticed yours are coming out quickly. Yeah. Is that like a new thing and is that what you did? 
so uh, yeah, we're like the Netflix generation. So this binge watching, quick hitting, give it to us now generation, uh-huh. yeah. which I, I enjoy. Uh, my wife and I will binge many a Netflix series. Um, and so when we first got the publishing deal, my agent actually pitched it. She said, hey, Scott is a quick worker. He's very um, speedy in his edits. Would you consider doing this sort of eight-month model where we do it once every eight months instead of once per year? I mean, y'all are familiar with that, the book that every year a new one comes out. It is kind of a long wait. Um, and they first rejected it because there weren't many books to model it after. There are a few in the adult sci-fi realm, but for the most part, it's not very common. Uh, but then they saw how I edited <laughs> and how quick I was. Yeah. Um, and they were like, you know what? Like, We've got a lot of excitement. We want to keep that enthusiasm. We've got kids waiting for the book, too. Yeah. Why not just make that come quicker and bring it up a little bit? And so my books will release every eight or nine months now. And so within like kind of a two-year stretch, all three will be out there. Um, and that I think it is going to be, you're going to see that become more popular, but only for authors. I mean, I just did an event in D.C. with Rachel Hartman, the Serafina series, and she takes three years to write her books and cannot write them faster. She was very adamant about that. She's like, I just, I'm not going to be able to do it faster. And I think it's a model that if it works for you, it works for you kind of thing. Do you keep a track of how many pages you do a day? Or, or no, I usually count the word count at the end of the year. Okay. Yeah. So like I might, you know, when I was abroad, I wrote about 500,000 words in a 10-month stretch when I was in Switzerland, uh, which is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was doing it full time, so I was I was getting to kind of plug away pretty much all day. Was yeah. that like a writing retreat trip? No, my wife got a great job. She's oh, really okay. good at what she does, <laughs> okay. and I was just along for the ride. Very nice. Yeah, nice. That's that's good when you have the, the breadwinner, so you can build your career. Ex- on the side. Exactly. Yeah. Perks of the trade. Grace, do you have another question before we open it up to audience? Yeah. Yeah. One one or two more things. Sure. Um, let's see here. Um, you said about book three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll just go to that. Tell us about book three and and what the challenges were there, and 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 when you cannibalized it, what did you do next? Cried. I cried a lot. <laughs> um, no. Um, so book three, I think that's why I sat down with Victoria Schwab for coffee. It's the reason I was picking Jay Kristoff's brain. He's the author of Illuminae, that series. Um, I talked with both of them because I knew they had closed out series before, and I wanted to know how. How, how do you do justice to these characters that have become big in your mind but big in your reader's mind? Like, how do you pull that off? And so I quickly, like, sat down with both of them, talked about it, and I think for me the process was I wanted to write a really great book that's really thrilling, that there's twists at every turn. That's kind of a trademark for my work is people who have read book one are like, I cannot believe that happened. (laughs) Uh, And so I wanted to capture that same feeling, but also with all the momentum of a group of people that you've come to love throughout the whole series and delivering each of their arcs in a powerful way. Uh, I wrote my favorite scene ever. It is 370 words long. And it is the best chapter I've ever written. And I know I, I know I delivered on like 10 different levels in that 300 word stretch. And I, like you start, I think once you've spent a lot of time in the characters and with your ability and with your talent, you kind of figure out like, this is something where I've really, I actually have done what I was supposed to do in this scene. Yeah. Like I really killed it in this one. Uh, so yeah. One, one last thing, and then before we open it up to questions, I wanted to ask you about when I was listening to you on um, another podcast talking about sort of your writing process, you discussed that how much better your work has become mm-hmm. but also in like very tangible ways and when I was looking through your uh, the, the the first couple chapters sample oh, yeah. I see that 
you know, it's very. I know there's tons of craft to making sure. it sound very conversational and very yeah. chill and relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, but that's like an incredibly imp- hard thing to accomplish. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the the strategies you employ to make your writing better, crisper, firmer, whatever? Yeah. Uh, so the number one thing I'll tell you to do is you're probably already doing this a little bit, but if you're a writer who wants to become an author and like you're excitedly chasing whatever project is in mind, you're probably a reader too. And if you're not, you need to be. Uh, So what books are you reading? And are you still reading just for the enjoyment of reading? Which is fine, you should do that often. But every now and again, read like a writer and look at a book that really sweeps you away. Like just blows your mind. Pick that book out and go back and start rereading it. I have this like 20 question analysis I do on one book every year and I figure out exactly what they did that blew me away. Oh, what was it in chapter three? Why did I react so much to this chapter? And I look at exactly how they did it. Oh, they're using like the home base principle. So we go out and have adventure, but then there's a home base where we get to kind of relax and think that we're safe. Great, that's a technique I'll steal. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I always look for new techniques and you can do that by reading very rigorously like a writer. Well, also, I mean, Rich and I were talking comics writing on the way here, which. I know it's very different, but I've gotten to the point now where like I count the number of panels on each page because I want to look oh, yeah. at how I'm like you. you it's, comics, especially, it's so meticulous, and you have to look at yeah. how you have to write scripts that the artist can deliver, and that you want to make sure there are not too many words on the page, and yeah. that it's evenly distributed. Uh, so I pay attention to those little fine yeah. details. And you're slowly grooming an arsenal of tools that you can use. Yeah. I My writing is the way it is because of Patrick Rothfuss, because of Maggie yeah. Stiefvater, because of Pierce Brown, because of uh, Marie Lu- I mean, an endless litany of people who I have stolen little things from and claimed them as my own and marked them with my own kind of flags. Yeah. And that's well, fine. That's how it works. One more thing before we open to the audience. What's something you're reading now that you would really like to recommend? Uh, oof, oof. Um, so I, let's see, what is on like my bedside table right now? Um, I just finished One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. Okay, nice. Yeah. Very yeah. Excellent. Uh, all right, does everybody have questions? Yes, in the back. For people that are considering self-publishing, what advice do you have about working with editors? There seem to be a lot of people out there that are willing to take your money yeah true my so I do edit actually I do editing jobs I'm taking I just took one for this month actually Um, but in my opinion like definitely vet them so ask for recommendations from previous people that have worked with them they should be able to provide you those Uh, definitely have them run through the first 15 or 20 pages and if you like what you see and you know it's gonna be valuable that's maybe worth your time and attention um for self-publishing the uh, there's several different models there's uh, i think a casual model where you're just enjoying your craft and you're putting work out there when you can and when you want to and then the people i know who are like doing it for a living the self-publishing model that i've seen is short work novella length almost and they try to get four of those out in one year and they just bust their tails to make sure that they're putting out work that they're that they're they're slowly building base that gets bigger and bigger always have something to read next 
Um, and, and I don't know, how does an editor fit into that model if you have to get it so quickly? Many of them use beta readers. Uh, there's something I would highly suggest you look at called beta books. It's a new service where instead of having all your beta work go through email, you go through one document and all of your beta commenters are all in that one space and so it's very organized. That's um, uh, Andrew Burleson and Paul Kilpatrick just made that. Um, but it's a great, it's a great service. Um, but a lot of that's what I see more is not editors, but a self-publishing person who has like thirty beta readers who give him an intimate feedback, and he consolidates that and makes a great book very quickly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Say you're in love with an idea or something that you're writing. Sure. Um, but it needs to die. How do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. How do you kill your heart? Oh, it's so hard. Uh, I've had a few concepts that I'm like, oh, that's the best. Like, I want that on the page, and it just doesn't fit in that story. And I've had a few stories that I wasn't ready to write. It's totally okay to shelf things and know that uh, life's not permanent. By no means do we know how long it's going to be, but you probably can revisit that story. And maybe when you revisit it, you've written a couple novels in between and you've grown the chops to know how to take that story on. I had to do that. I have this one big fantasy that I want to write. I wanted to be George R. R. Martin and I was, you know, it was just not very skillful at that time. And so what I was writing didn't do justice to the idea that I had. And so I shelved it and I'm going to write 12 books before I go back to it. Is that an arbitrary number or exact? Twelve. So, sounds exact. exact. Yeah, exact. exact. Yeah. Twelve. Yeah. In the back there, you had kind of. Okay, I have a couple different questions. Um, when you clock the hours you spend writing, are you disciplined with that, or are they estimates? Mostly estimates. My I've learned. Uh, Sarah Dessen does this. She's a YA author. She um, she knows she can only write successfully for four hours. Um, anything past that, she's going to get tired and ineffective. And so what she does is she writes for four hours and trains herself that those four hours are all writing. No Twitter, which is so easy to alt tab to. No social media, no email checking, no, oh, I'm going to pause for this. She's going to write for those four hours. And then the rest of the day might be whatever she wants it to be, emailing, whatever. But I, I definitely, when I was writing Nixia, I wrote it as a school teacher. Every day I... I really, I worked tirelessly so that I could get out at 3 p.m. every day, and from 3 to 6, I was going to write my book. Um, and I was inspired because an author had come to visit us, and he shared that he was writing six hours a day, and in my head I was like, he's getting six hours a day better than me every day. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to take that little time that I know I can claim, and I'm going to make it about the thing that I love. Now he's only getting three hours better than you every day. Yeah, so, you know, whatever. I'm fighting, I'm fighting the pill, but it's fine. <laughs> Your three hours may be more productive. Exactly, exactly. Yes. A competitive um, spirit. Yeah. yeah. And as a, oh, I had a second question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as a creative, like, what, like, what did you do? Like, what did you tell yourself? What inspired you to keep going despite all of those no's and the no's in the future, probably? I got some hard notes, like some really hard ones that, like for Nixia actually, uh, I had done a lot of work with an agent that I was like, for sure she's gonna love it. I had blogged about her her clients, I had had them as guests in my classroom, like I had connected so that, I, I, I was sure if anyone was gonna accept this manuscript, it would be her. My first day in Switzerland where I was gonna start being a full-time author, she rejected it. And I laid in bed and looked out the window of a new city, and I was like, "What is life? <laughs> who, who am I?" Um, and but but I think I always come back to 
this is the thing. I, like, I love this bone deep. It is a part of who I am. It is what I'm supposed to do. It just, it just makes me come alive. Um, and there's n no way that anyone else is ever going to dictate to me what I can and cannot do or what I should or should not love. And so if this is what I'm passionate about, it, 600 rejection letters. I, I, I'm glad that they weren't that many, but if I had gotten that many, I still think I'd be writing. I still think I'd be diving into novels. Yeah. Up front, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, like when you get to the, like, I'm stuck on like little details. Yeah. I'll be like, wait, no. And then I'll go back three or four paragraphs and then I'll try and rewrite it. And then I'll go back. Like, how do you get past that? Oh, it's so hard. You have to forge ahead. I start every writing day. Let's say I wrote a thousand words the day before. I will go back and do a light edit on those, and then by the time I hit the end where I don't have any more words, I've gotten a little rhythm, I've gotten the voice back, and I dive into it. Um, but there is a point, and to Tomi Adeyemi, who I mentioned before, does this. She says, some of my scenes, it literally is like, they go to desert, no one dies. <laughs> That's the scene. And she just moves on, because she knows she, in that moment she's not ready to write it, she knows where it needs to go, she just needs to push herself forward so she's not stuck. Um, and I think there is a point where you're so detail specific and oriented that it's okay just to move on and the, the, the paragraph about how they walk through the forest isn't perfect. That's okay. Uh, as long as you're pressing the story deeper and deeper. And I would also encourage people to know there is a point, you can edit it 20 times over 15 years, but there is a point where you probably have taken your story as far as it can go. And you either need an agent or an editor to push it a little further, or a great writing group, or a beta reader, but there is a limit to how far you can push your own story without the help of other people who can give you great advice. Yeah. Over here. Did you see Nixia as a three-part series when you started it? When they paid me three, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I definitely, in my mind, thought it's gonna be three books if I, do it, if I can do it well. And now that I've finished those three books, I'm really glad it was three books. Uh, my next book series will not be a trilogy. <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, I saw it that way. Do yeah. you think the publishers are as interested in standalone? Publishers love standalone now, and they are very tired of trilogy. And really? are not going to invest as much in trilogy anymore. Uh, wow. Everything I've heard, like even Marie Lu, a couple of very established authors have started shifting to duologies. So it's a one-two hit. Um, and that has become more the popular medium for people who love series and can write series because trilogies have become, they've seen what happens in the movies, they've seen what, like, oh, you know, true. as much as, like, Hunger Games is kind of the exception, I guess. Yeah. Some of, like, Harry Potter, of course, but, like, there are definitely trilogies that have hit cinema and, like, the second... Like, the first one's really exciting, and the second one people bail on. By the time the third one. Yeah. yeah it's, no, it's the, the Death Cure and... Yeah. and yeah. Um, Maze Runner's and a great Diver example. And Divergent. Yeah. Divergent is a really is good example. Is the best example, and they're trying to what, yeah. reboot it as a show, but I don't even think that's going to so happen. So there's a lot of exhaustion around trilogy. Uh, not to say you can't write a brilliant trilogy. Writing will, will win out. If you write a great story, they're going to pay you for it, Like, and they're going to they're gonna want it. But at the end of the day, I think trilogies are getting a little bit more tired. Yeah. Right behind you, yeah. How are we doing yeah. on time, guys? Ten minutes. Oh. Two. Okay. Um, all right, my question is, how do you, what struggles did you have to overcome to develop a relationship with your editor where you actually trust them? <sighs> That's that great. sounds very, because I know it can help, yeah. but it also sounds scary. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, 
So my experience is a little different. Uh, I would tell you that my my editor is very New York, so she's cold cut. Like mm-hmm. she is very. She's not gonna give me a compliment sandwich, and I'm kind of someone who likes a compliment <laughs> sandwich. Like, I am too. I'd love to know what you loved about the book. Uh, but she's she's more like she's more like, hey, here are the six broken things. Good luck fixing them. I'm like. Did you like any of it? Um, but she that's just not how she operates. And so I had to learn that. I had to get over myself. Um, and then I talked to some of the other clients she works with and found out it was so very normal. And, and I did see her edits make my book better. And that will always, like as an artist, she took my book where I could not take it. And to me, that's exciting. Like my book is better because of her. Wow, how, how cool that we get to work together. And so I think faith was built over time and seeing results. Um, I did get frustrated sometimes. Sometimes I was like, she'd be like, this is broken. I'd be like, what's your idea for fixing it? Uh, we had arguments about stuff, uh, but that's, that's normal too. So, yeah. Well, it looks like we're going to no. make for the next panel here. But, um, no, we, we, have, we, have we, have ten, we have 10 minutes. We have a question in the back. Okay, cool. Okay. Sorry. Um, no, you're fine. I kind of have the opposite question of the person up front. I have like a story that's like 26 chapters of plot and dialogue, yeah. but like the character development just isn't there, and I'm having a hard time really actually getting the characters relatable and be like, oh, that's awesome. That's sure. like feeling the emotion of them. What sort of suggestions do you have for that and adding that in once you've got the story? Two things. So read the work of someone who does character development really well. My person, like that was one of my big edits for Nixia. My my editor was like, hey, you know, one thing that I'm seeing is that the side characters don't come to life yet. And we need them to come to life. They need to pop off the page. They need to cast shadows, they're so real. Um, and so she said, I want you to work on that. And the first thing I did is I went to Robin Hobbs books who does character character interaction so so well it's like mind-blowing because each of her characters is such a different person based on who they're speaking with and who they're relating to that they seem real they seem like real people so I went to her work I read her work I took notes and I went back to my work and tried to implement some of what she was doing the other thing I would suggest is just like creepily like watch people in coffee shops, I guess, like, uh, you know, or think about people in your, your life, you know, people you watch and know, what are the ticks that make them human as opposed to a random flat character on a page? How do you, how do you take those things and put them into your characters and infuse them in a real way? Yeah. If you didn't really, if you go to like a coffee shop or a mall or something and just listen to conversations, it's fascinating. Yeah, like, you'll pick up a few. You're not yeah. in trouble. I mean, it's not illegal. But. It's not illegal. <laughs> just don't, just don't stare for too don't long. Don't stare for too you long. Know? Like, if you look at your computer and just listen, it's fascinating. Like, oh. So I guess the perfect way to end would be to ask you what's next. So the next books, the final books coming out. Well, Scott, thank uh, you so yeah. much. Thank you. That was yeah, awesome. Thanks. Thanks for. And I'll, I'll be out in the hall yeah, if you want to ask a few more questions.